I added one more podcast to the giant podcast bin. Now you have plucked that podcast out and started listening. I took my microphone and found some human folk. Then I recorded all the noises while we spoke. My name is Adam Buxton. I'm a man. I want you to enjoy this. That's the plan. Hey, how are you doing, podcats? It's Adam Buxton here. And I'm reporting to you from a field in Norfolk County. And I'm yomping through a dewy field with my best dog friend in the whole world, which is Rosie Buxton. How are you doing, Rosie? Not too excited about being on this walk in the wet grass, actually. Oh, dear. Well, we need some exercise, so... It's nice to be out. Plus, it's not too windy, as it has been the last few times when we've come out to record these intros. Today, it's nice and still. And these are the sounds of rural Norfolk on a Sunday afternoon at the beginning of March 2024. A bit of sport being played over there in the distance. Oh, some clapping. Good sport has happened. Beautiful birds enjoying the marshy conditions around this part. I've had quite a bit of rain this week. And it's brought the river levels right up. The water hasn't drained away yet. And the birds dig it. How's things with you, though, podcats? Not too bad, I hope. Look up there, Rosie. There's a big, giant bird just sat there. What is that? Is that one of those Egyptian geese? It's quite warm now. Right, focus. Let me tell you a little bit about podcast number 222 which features a literally rambling conversation with the British writer, journalist and environmental activist George Monbiot. Monbiot facts! George was born in 1963 and grew up in Oxfordshire, later studying zoology at the Oxford University. In his 20s, after leaving Oxford, he began a career in investigative journalism, covering topics from politics and economics to environmental science and conservation. His first book, Poisoned Arrows, about human rights issues in West Papua, was published in 1989. And since then, in addition to his journalism and public speaking, George has written, by my count, another 11 books. Those have included Captive State, the corporate takeover of Britain, published in 2000 in which George considered the influence of corporate power on democracy. His book, Feral, was published in 2013. That was a plea to bring wonder back into our lives by restoring and rewilding our damaged ecosystems on land and at sea. George is the founder of The Land is Ours, a campaign for the right of access to the countryside and its resources in the United Kingdom. 
In 2016, in his regular column for the Guardian newspaper, George wrote movingly on the subject of loneliness. It was a piece that led to him collaborating with Scottish folk musician Ewan McLennan on an album featuring songs and spoken word passages called Breaking the Spell of Loneliness. The project, which also included a book, aimed to explore the themes of social isolation, community and connection in modern society. In his 2022 book, Regenesis, Feeding the World Without Devouring the Planet, George considered the environmental impact of agriculture and proposed sustainable alternatives. This is just a tiny selection from George's career thus far, you understand. He has just finished writing a new book, Invisible Doctrine, The Secret History of Neoliberalism. And he wrote that with filmmaker Peter Hutchinson. It's due for publication in May of this year, 2024. And in it, he and Peter, I am now quoting from the blurb, show how a fringe philosophy in the 1930s, championing competition as the defining feature of humankind, was systematically hijacked by a group of wealthy elites determined to guard their fortunes and power. Think tanks, corporations, the media, university departments and politicians were all deployed to promote the idea that people are consumers rather than citizens. There's a link in the description so that you can do your duty as consumers and pre-order the book. My conversation with George was recorded towards the end of April last year, 2023, in Bristol, not far from where George now lives with his partner in South Devon. And rather than sit in a room, we went wandering on a rather overcast day through the parks and woodland on the edge of Bristol, overlooking the River Avon, with me doing my best to catch what George was saying on my dictaphone, the one that I am using now, which I think I mainly did. Which I think I mainly did. We talked about some of the themes in George's book, Regenesis, including the aspects of farming that George considers such a threat to the health of the planet. But I also asked George about his own life and what he does for a good time, the secrets of cider making, why he wasn't more excited about the coronation of King Charles, which at that point was just over a week away. And we talked about our very starkly contrasting experiences of being sent away to boarding school at a young age. I also asked George how he came to believe in the benefits of nuclear power, and I asked him about some of the things that give him hope, despite the many problems the planet faces. But we began our ramble in the park at the top of Bristol, where George introduced me to a selection of tiny soil dwellers in a random clump of earth. Back at the end for a bit more waffle, but right now with George Mombio. Here we go. Ramble chat, let's have a ramble chat. We'll focus first on this, then concentrate on that. Come on, let's chew the fat and have a ramble chat. Put on your conversation coat and find your talking hat. could set the scene for us George. Sure. So we're on Clifton Downs which is the park at the top of Bristol I mean the sort of physical top of Bristol it's like yeah. almost the highest point 
and one edge of it looks down over the Avon Gorge, so we might go there. Um, the other edge touches the top of the city at this very grand part of the city called Clifton. I used to live in Bristol a long time ago. The only proper job I ever had was a producer at the BBC's Natural History Unit based here. Right. And so I used to come up here and run around and do a little exercise, watch the birds, often see sparrowhawks and stuff. Yeah. So it's, it's a bit of an old stamping ground. Yeah. Well, it's nice to be in Bristol. It's always nice yeah. to come to beautiful Bristol. Yeah. It's broad-minded attitudes <laughs> and it's uh, lovely hills and views. Okay, so where should we go first? Well, I thought we could maybe do a couple of things. We could head towards the woods on the edge of the gorge and have a look down over the gorge, which is quite spectacular. Yeah. But also, I brought a trowel along and a little hand lens, and I thought we might look for little beasts in the soil. Okay. Which is one of my Which is how your book starts. Yeah. Regenesis. Yeah. Uh, with you doing exactly that. Yeah. And communing with the nematodes. That's right. It was a revelation. You know, I've been all over the world looking at ecosystems, looking at beasts, you know, in rainforests and deserts and the sea and the tundra and everywhere. But I suddenly realised at the age of 50-something that perhaps the most interesting ecosystem of all was the one I was standing on. Uh And I'd never explored it. And as soon as I did... It was like this whole world opening up, of which I'd previously been unaware. And was there a specific incident that triggered that realisation or that interest? I mean, the thing which really did it for me was lockdown, because I I couldn't go anywhere, couldn't go and explore all the lovely places I like to visit. And so I thought, you know, where can I go? The only way I can go is down. (laughs) The only way is down. And actually, it was a great place to go. And so, you know, while... I was sort of inwardly moaning about not being able to go any further. Actually, I was having these amazing adventures. And at the time, we were living in Oxford and I had a little allotment orchard where we grew, like, heritage apples and cherries and pears and stuff. And so I started digging in that, just little holes, and going in with a hand lens. And, well, hopefully we'll see for ourselves, but it's just like suddenly you realise that this thing you've taken for granted that is literally beneath us is as rich and abundant as a rainforest or a coral reef yeah in fact the soil is a bit like a coral reef in that it's a biological structure it's created by the creatures that live in it if it weren't for those creatures there would be no soil and it turns out to be a phenomenally complex biological structure which we have scarcely begun to understand and yet this ecosystem that we know almost nothing about produces 99% of our calories. Yeah. You know, we are totally dependent on it, and yet we're blundering around in total ignorance. Let's move over and let's find yeah, somewhere to start well, digging. Well, look, I think this could be quite good because it's, you want a bit which hasn't been trampled. Now, yeah, okay. look, I can't guarantee what we find because it can be very variable. But what we've got here is a bit of sward which um, isn't compacted. So that's a good start. And it's under permanent grass, so that's another good start because it's not all smashed up. And so it's great it sward. Be, it's great sward. And we're going to dig a very small hole. If any of the park wardens are listening, it's going to be just a, a speck. I don't speck believe that that's the worst that's happened up here yeah. in this part no, of Bristol. I'd be very surprised. Uh, so I've got a trowel. Not to um, sound obsessed by sward, but <laughs> like, is the lawn behind us is that sward I, I don't know if you'd call that sward i think it, that there has to be some sward. length in it length. i think there has to be some oh length. this is tough you see i would call it tufty yeah so george has just stuck his trowel 
into the sward and he has dug out a nice, I think the official technical <laughs> term is lump of very, would you say, peaty soil? I would say it's it's clay sandy. You can see it's sort of got this like no, reddishness not to it. <laughs> and it's got some worms um, sticking out of worms. it. Instant worms. But it's the things you can't see with the naked eye. It's very are often most exciting. It is. It is chocolatey. That is a good way of putting it. Wait a minute. Let's get the light on this. It's so this sort is of little, like, well, have a smell. kind of like pudding. Mmm, that is very soily. Oh, look. And this is a leather jacket, which is the larva of a crane fly. Oh, look. There's a um, tawny minor bee, which must have been digging its hole in there. It's now walking over my finger. Sorry to have disturbed you. Does it have stinging capacity? It does, yes. But you're yeah. just very confidently... <laughs> well, if it, it doesn't your see you as its enemy, we're basically just seeing you as a plant. So that must have been burrowing into the soil, and I'm sorry to have disturbed you. Wow, that is crazy. You dug that up, and there's yeah. it's like you <laughs> pre-planned how <laughs> busy it was going to be. It yeah. is... Well, it's it's... It is nuts. It's like the whole yeah. cast of some Pixar movie. Oh, that's it. Yes. On there. Yes. And that's just what you can see with the naked eye. Now, where it gets really interesting is and the stuff you need to lens for. Of you. Right. There's a little white slug here. I'm seeing a tiny little potworm. Stone worm. <laughs> oh, this centipede's cool. Let me... Um... Right. And now George is plopping... A centipede it's a on here, really and this tiny is tiny white one, isn't it? Oh yeah. Hello, mate. Yeah, it's very, very tiny. It's like a. I is mean, it? the actual body itself is only slightly thicker than a coarse hair. Yeah. And so the tiny little legs on there are just unimaginably yeah. thin. But I mean, that is your medieval white worm, isn't it? I mean, if if that thing were coming at you and it were twenty foot long. It'd be I mean, sad. What I'm really looking for are these amazing little crawling creatures like springtails and mites and bristletails, which are quite magic. They, they, they've got so many different shapes and sizes and colours. I mean, when you've got the right conditions, the right place, right time of year, when it's warm, in a couple of hours doing this, you can see more of the major branches of life than you would on a two-week safari in the Serengeti because you've just got this astonishing abundance and diversity. And what do you mean by the branches of life? So the big, what we call the big taxonomic groups, the, the orders, the classes, the phyla. So, for instance, um, you and me belong to phylum chordata, which is all animals with backbones and quite a few with sort of semi-backbones. Uh, it's a vast phylum, which has got the mammals, it's got the birds, it's got the reptiles, the amphibians, the fish, the hemichordates, the sea squirts, the lancelets, the lampreys, all sorts of weird things in it. And then we're in a class, which is a smaller group of that, called mammalia, and then you go down and down from there. And most of them, you know, are unknown, even to someone like me with a zoology degree. Right. And you make the point in the book fairly early on, I think, that there is, am I right in saying no institute for soil ecology there's no global treaty on soil for a start i mean there's treaties on all sorts of things there's nothing on soil there is no global soil ecology institute and there's no 
whole undergraduate degree that you can do on soil in this country. Right. I mean, it's just... It's, in other words, an incredibly low level of expertise yeah. for something so fundamental. Yeah. It's, it's neglect on a massive scale. And it's, I think, typical of the way we operate. You know, we talk about having blind spots, but we don't have blind spots. We have tiny spots of light, a few things that we concentrate on, and we miss everything else that surrounds it. And, I mean, soil breakdown is probably as big an issue as climate breakdown, mm. yet we scarcely talk about it at all. And so we have this relentless focus on things, some of which are important, some of which are completely unimportant, and we miss the bigger picture over and over again. Generally, especially in the media in which we both work, what is important is not salient and what is salient is not important. But do you characterise that as being malicious? No. I mean, I think most of it is out of ignorance. I mean, we're we're all phenomenally ignorant. And so... As far as your interest in soil goes, in Regenesis, your book, that leads you to talking about farming a great deal. So, you know, we can have this entirely innocent conversation about potworms and dipleurins and centipedes and bees, and you say, well, isn't that sweet? But actually, if you you have a political sense of the predicament we're in you can't help but take that forward into saying and therefore unless things change radically we are totally fucked and we've got to stop that from happening and that means confrontation that means you inevitably run up against vested interests you can't help it and i'm not saying these interests are evil or they're trying to push us towards destruction they're not that's not the agenda at all they're just trying to carry on making money in the way that they make money or pursue cultural interests or whatever it might be that currently might seem to people in that position to be the only way in which they could possibly live. And someone like me comes along and saying, actually, this way in which you are innocently living is pushing us towards the precipice at great speed. And it was partly through my interest in soil, but actually through my interest in all other Earth systems, that I came to this horrifying realisation that the worst thing we've ever done to the planet is farming. Mm -hmm. And that doesn't win you many friends. No, I mean, it's... My expertise in your field is minimal. But just the most cursory amount of digging into your writing and the conversations that you have immediately brings me up against your critics and people who are upset by what you have to say. And the most obvious of those as far as regenesis goes are the farmers who traditionally they're the salt of the earth literally yeah, yeah. they're individuals who are honest hard-working folk and how do you characterize some of the criticisms that you've received what are the typical things that you're being accused oh, of people say you're trying to destroy our industry you're undermining hundreds of years of hard work you're attacking my culture And, yeah, I completely get all that. I understand where people are coming from. You know, and farmers aren't very used to criticism for the reasons that you say. You know, they're revered in our society. And, of course, we are totally dependent on farming for our survival. And I'm not saying we should do away with all farming because we would immediately starve, obviously. I am saying, actually, that there are major portions of food production we can take out of farming altogether and we would benefit enormously if we did that. But... You know, people get very threatened, understandably. Yeah. So to be clear, like, what is it that you are proposing in Mm. Regenesis? Broadly speaking, more food with less farming. And by less farming, I mean less impact 
I also mean less land use, and that is you know the crucial aspect that another of these massive things we overlook. So you know, as environmentalists, we go on about um, climate breakdown, about river pollution, about plastic. There are a few issues that obsess us, but the biggest one of all, and perhaps the most obvious one, is one we scarcely talk about, which is the amount of land we use. That is the crucial environmental resource. And every hectare you use for extractive industries is a hectare that can't be occupied by wild ecosystems. Mm -hmm. Yet the great majority of the world's species and Earth systems themselves depend for their survival on wild ecosystems. And we sometimes talk about land when it comes to cities. We talk about urban sprawl. And we're right to get angry about urban sprawl. It's bad for cities, it's bad for the countryside. We should try to keep cities compact. But the total global area of cities, in fact, all the built environment, all our homes, all our businesses, all our infrastructure is 1% of the planet's land surface. Farming occupies 38% of the planet's land surface. And the great majority of that is very low production. So it's agricultural sprawl. It's occupying large areas of land while producing very little. And that has a huge opportunity cost, a huge ecological opportunity cost, which is the cost of the ecosystems that aren't there because that land is occupied by farming, and the carbon opportunity cost because invariably those ecosystems are richer in carbon than the farming systems that have replaced them. Now, we can break this down still further. 38% of the land surface used by farming, and you think of farming as being crops, right? But mm-hmm. only 12% of the land is covered by crops. And only roughly half of that land is producing crops directly eaten by humans. The rest is crops eaten by livestock. So only about 6 7% of the land surface is producing crops directly consumed by people. What about that 26%? All that is grazing land. That's all land where primarily cattle and sheep are grazing. Now, all the foodies and the celebrity chefs and the food writers and people are saying, oh, we should eat pasture-fed meat. Pasture-fed meat is great. Yeah, well, it seems superficially like a better life for the animals. Yeah, and it probably is, marginally. I mean, it's not great, but it is certainly better than being crammed into a massive steel factory, Mm. like almost all our meat and animal products come from massive steel factories we totally deceive ourselves about what we're eating where yeah what, what is do you know what the sort of percentage it's of, around 90 percent of, of, of all our animal products are factory and farmed. those are the sort of horrific images of the animals in the worst kind of condition yeah and we're in total denial about it you know yeah. so in the u.s for instance where 95 percent of people eat meat there was a survey which showed that 47% of people wanted to ban slaughterhouses. Yeah, yeah. You know, we're in a state of cognitive dissonance. We don't want to go there. We don't want to explore how we're really eating and where it comes from. But there's a small proportion of our diet which comes from pasture-fed animals. Um, some of our milk, some of our meat comes from pasture-fed animals. And, is and that so the that, same as free-range? Yeah, it is when it comes to cattle and sheep. When it comes to chickens, free-range is actually just, you know, there's a small muddy yard and most of the time they're spending indoors in most cases. But anyway, but yeah, free-range beef and lamb, that, we're talking about pasture-fed primarily. And people say, well, that's what we should eat instead. Because look, you can see it's much nicer. And you can. Aesthetically, it's much more pleasing. It's probably slightly kinder to the animals. Environmentally, it's an absolute catastrophe. It's the worst thing you can possibly do. There was a study in the United States looking at what would happen if people did as the foodies tell us to do, which is to switch from corn-fed beef, which is a nightmare in its own right, to pasture-fed beef. And it found you'd have to expand the area used for cattle 270 percent 
You'd have to cut down all the forests, drain all the wetlands, degazette all the national parks, demolish all the cities, and you'd still be importing a lot of your beef from Brazil. There's just not enough planet mm. to do it. You know, the only reason some people can eat pasture-fed meat is that other people aren't. Yeah, and it's disastrous. Why? Because the impression that most people have, that someone like me has is that it's a kind of self-regulating system and that the animals grazing on that land is part of the cycle of what regenerates the countryside. This is a story we're told and people say, well, we're mimicking the ecosystem, but it's a very thin caricature of a wild ecosystem. So the first question you'd ask when you come to an ecosystem is where are the large predators? Predators are slaughtered around the world at the behest of livestock farming. The next thing you'd ask is, in a formerly forested landscape, where are the trees? And, of course, in your average livestock landscape, there might be no trees at all. I mean, if you go to the uplands of Britain, they are almost entirely treeless. And that's not because that is their natural state. It's because of grazing, mostly by sheep. And sheep, they love tree seedlings. They're they're highly nutritious, and so they seek them out. So you'd have to bring down your sheep numbers to about five per square kilometre until trees started to come back. And already sheep farming is completely uneconomic, even at current densities. And so, I mean, you might as well just not have them at all, which would be the better option. And so what you've got in grazing livestock is a fully automated system for ecological destruction. And they also produce a lot of methane. These ruminant animals are the biggest source of human-generated methane. And methane is a very potent greenhouse gas. And partly, primarily because of that, the livestock industry is estimated to produce more greenhouse gases than all global transport. Really? Even even if you shut down all other sources of greenhouse gases everywhere on Earth, the food industry alone, primarily because of livestock, would overshoot the 1.5 degrees target by two or three times by the end of the century. So in the chart, because the chart is constantly surprising, what is producing the most amount of harmful emissions? The fashion industry is way up there. Yeah, yeah, yeah. The kind of fast fashion industry. What, what is number one producer of... Well, it's, it's fossil fuels. It's fossil fuels, yeah. right, still. Um, yeah. yeah. But, you know, if you look at the, the total impacts of livestock farming, because it affects just about every ecosystem. You know, it's the shit going down the rivers, which is now, in many parts of the world, the major source of river pollution. You know, here in this country, we're obsessed by sewage, as we ought to be. It's disgusting what the water companies are doing. But actually, it's only the second biggest source of river pollution. The biggest source is agriculture, mostly driven by the livestock industry. And mm. It's the chicken farms, it's the dairy farms, it's the pig farms, just producing too much poo. And it either... It, goes directly into the river or indirectly it's washed off the land into the river you get what's called eutrophication overnutrition of the river Um, you get algal blooms they kill off everything else and you get a dead river and that's happening all over the country some of our best rivers but then there you've also got dead zones forming at sea partly because of the volume of livestock manure you've got the uh, huge areas of land being turned over to crops to be grown for livestock but over and above everything else you've got the land used for grazing livestock which is all land which could otherwise support wild ecosystems and that land occupies twice as much space as all the other land that humans are primarily using and we ought to be all over that like a rash as environmentalists but we're not we hold back we're afraid to touch it we're afraid to go there because there's a kind of moral force field around farming Mm-hmm. We don't judge it by the same standards yeah, that we apply people, to other industries. 
Right. Because people presumably think, well, people need to eat. Yeah, and we do. You know, this is why it's not an attempt to get rid of farming, but radically to change it so that we can continue to eat. Right. Yeah, because that is one of the fundamental problems. We, we are destroying the basis of our subsistence. If you start with soil, where it all comes from, we are ripping through soil at phenomenal rates. Soil degradation rates mean that future food production will be made impossible unless we change things very quickly and drastically. But when you look at all the aggregate impacts of the livestock industry, it seems to me as urgent to stop farming animals as it is to leave fossil fuels in the ground. And I completely understand why that's a highly unpopular message. In fact, when we first started talking about leaving fossil fuels in the ground, that was also a highly unpopular message. Of course, message. and it still is very yeah, controversial exactly. in many parts of the world where there's communities that rely mm, on, totally. on the coal miners, those the oil workers. Yeah. They hate you for it, and fair enough. You know, I, 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 again, I understand that. The difference in this case is far fewer people are calling for an end to livestock farming. And so those few of us who are, are much more exposed. Yeah, yeah. And also people say, why is he going after the farmers? Mm. This situation really is enabled by big farm, mm. or whatever the yeah. corporate term big for farmer. it is. You can call it big farmer. Big farmer. <laughs> big is, farmer. That makes it a bit yeah. more confusing. Well, I mean, there's no clear lines here. You know, a farmer just the other day was fined for destroying the banks of the River Lug. And I saw him defended on social media as saying, um, oh, this farmer was only trying to protect his livelihood, you know, he's struggling to survive like anyone else. Well, after the prosecution, the reports came out in the papers that his assets are valued at between 21 and 23 million pounds. Okay. Yeah, this is your horny-handed son, of, son of toil. he's probably an outlier, though, yes? Well, I mean, when most... it comes to capital wealth, a lot of farmers are very, very rich indeed. Uh-huh. Income, not so much. You know, we're talking about you know, a fundamental difference there. But most of that income for livestock farmers in this country, certainly for livestock farmers whose animals graze outside, is coming from public subsidies. You and I are paying for it. Now, there's a fundamental principle of public money that it should buy public goods, not public harm. And, and by subsidising livestock farming, and the majority of, of farm subsidies go into livestock farming, we're actually subsidising public harm. It's like subsidising coal or oil. Mm-hmm. And we shouldn't be doing that. I'm perfectly happy for us to continue paying farmers, but pay them for something entirely different. Pay them to restore ecosystems rather than continue to trash them. Mm. Hey, George, shall we change location? Yeah, let's go to the gorge. been lucky with the weather so far it's kind of overcast out here but it's not raining which is good and a whole flock of jackdaws come down and they're feeding over the field a couple of carrying crows as well magpie what are those guys munching uh well we found that leather jacket didn't we that crane fly larva in the soil they're probably looking for them i would guess more than anything because they're big and juicy and they live close to the surface of the soil so they might be listening out to see if they can hear the leather jackets moving and then Right. Leather jackets don't sound nice to eat. They just make me think of Danny Zuko. (laughs) Hey, while we're walking, let's talk trivia before we go all heavy again. 
I had some trivial questions that I wanted to ask you. Well, when I was talking to Tom Hanks the other day, one surprisingly, <laughs> as one says, as one says <laughs> it's me and Tom chatting. One thing that did animate him was the question, what is your favourite drink? Mm. Do you oh, drink alcohol? God, yeah. yeah, yeah. So I sometimes get accused of being a champagne socialist. I'm at pains to point out that I'm actually a cider environmentalist. <laughs> uh, when we had the orchard in um, Oxford, we used to make our own cider. Uh-huh. And, um, and actually, to be honest, the, the making was more pleasurable than the drinking most of the time. Yeah. Some of it was good. Some of it was really good. But some of it was like, oh, God. Is it fizzy, that use stuff? Use it to remove graffiti. Yeah. Uh, yeah, well, it depends on the type. So, proper cider, proper cider, um, has, has nothing in it except the juice of the apples you've squeezed. You mash up the apples, stick them in a press, squeeze out the juice, and then you just leave it in bottles or barrels with the top slightly unscrewed so that um, it doesn't explode when it ferments. And you'll press it in October, and by Christmas you can start drinking. It's still pretty sweet then. It's very fizzy at that point. It's a nice drink, you know, on the whole. By February, I'd say it's about perfect. It's got a really nice balance. Not too sweet, not too dry. Still a bit of fizz in it. And you can drink it up to about the beginning of June. By July, it's paint stripper. It's so harsh. All the sugar's gone. Turned to alcohol, it gets very sharp and acidic. And you just... (laughs) It freezes your mouth. Do you drink it cold or do you drink it at room temperature? Oh, room temperature, a proper English purist. I think I've got quite an unsophisticated palate. I'm childish, George. I like fizzy pop. I like it cold. (laughs) You know, if I'm ordering at a pub, I'll just say, what's your weakest, fizziest lager? (laughs) And all the kind of ale guys look at me with contempt. He's not one of us. No, I'm terrible. (laughs) And what's your idea of a... uh, This is the kind of question that my character in Hot Fuzz would have asked. (laughs) I was an annoying local reporter in the film Hot Fuzz. (laughs) And one of my questions was, what's your idea of the perfect Sunday morning? I'm not going to ask you that specific one, but what do you do for a sort of indulgent night in? Well, I'm a day creature, to be honest. I get up very early, sometimes four o'clock. Um, often five. Whoa. What time uh, are you going to bed then? Like well, six? Yeah, it's a bit pathetic. But I'm definitely <laughs> That's in not bed pathetic, by ten. It's impressive. <laughs> I'm definitely yeah. in bed by ten. Um, and so everything I love doing is basically diurnal. So sea kayaking is top on my list. And I love being just out on my boat as far from the shore as I can get. Is this a solo kayaking expedition yeah. you're making? Yeah. The whole point of it, from my point of view, is to be by myself. Get as far away from everyone as possible. Okay, so it's a sort of meditative exercise. Yeah, yeah. So you're not listening to uh, Spotify Top 40 playlist? Not even to your podcast, I'm afraid oh, to say. That's no, perfect no. for kayaking. Yeah. So if it's really cold and it's raining, you're not going to go out now, are you? Um, if it's been a long time and the conditions haven't been right, I'll go out when it's a bit iffy. But you're, if you're, I'm you're still going to get pleasure in a kayak with rain coming at you like needles. Yeah, well... <laughs> you're yeah. like a hair shirt guy. Yeah, I, You'd be whipping yourself, <laughs> wouldn't you? Yeah, the, so I, I would have been a time. religious fanatic at a previous age. Yeah, do you reckon? Yeah. Um, now, listeners, we are navigating our way down quite a steep area of wood fairly slippery i'm aware that 
I'm not using any of the right terminology for what we're walking across. Give us the jargon I, I, for what steep, we're walking Steep and slippery is pretty close to the correct jargon, I'd say. I hope you don't mind me leading you down this tangled route. No, this is good. This is might, exciting. Might not be the best part. Okay, we're... we're whoa! Are we okay that? Yeah. You can tell we're in deep because there's no toilet paper. <laughs> And there's no contours <laughs> or crisp packets, you know what I mean? Oh no, hang on, I have found a vodka bottle. Small yeah. bottle of Glenn's vodka. Glenn's vodka, lovely. Wow, Glenn, he was really committed to it. He just... Yeah, he came along, oh, either that, we chucked the bottle. Right. And it rolled down the hill. This is the point at which I tell you I haven't a clue where I'm going. Yeah. <laughs> Where I'm trying to take you is to the edge of the Avon Gorge. I think that is over there somewhere. Well, we're just sort of working our way downwards. Yeah. I do see something. Yeah, there's something there, isn't there? <laughs> what is that, the road or the river? Well, there is a road, but there might be a river beneath it. Let, let's carry on and see what we could... Because somewhere along there, that, you can see that light, that could be the gorge. Okay. It's looking more civilised here. I can see a fridge container, F-R-I-J... And there's the condom packet. Yep, there there we, we go. Yep, we're not far. I mean, it is a beautiful spot for some drunken lovemaking. Yeah. We can do that later. This is something pretty amazing about British cities. You don't generally have to go very far, and you're in quite a wild place. Here we go. Here we go. Okay. Right, this is the Avon Gorge. So, we're looking down the um, tidal stretch of the River Avon. It's um, at low tide, it's pretty muddy. You can see further along the cliffs hanging over it. There's a road going alongside it. Sorry about that trek. No, that was fun. <laughs> I haven't done that on the look, podcast there's before. Incredibly wide range of trees. This is a hornbeam. You don't see many of those these days. Uh, there's an oak there, there's a beech there, there's ash, there's privet in the understory, there's yew, there's holly. And all this, Hazelware, all this is right on the edge of Bristol. Yeah. It's quite rich, rich bit of woodland. Yeah, there you go. Yeah. Doesn't surprise me in the least. Bristol's a wonderfully diverse place. It's a great place. Shall we carry on up this bit? Yeah. Okay. Whoa! There's some new graffiti. No King Love here. Uh, <laughs> yeah. Someone has painted in large white letters, capital letters, on a rock over the way from us. Quite a daring bit is on a major cliff face no king love here no king love here you've really got to Be a not have republican. any king love <laughs> to go out republican and to go to that length what are you going to be doing on the coronation day uh, hopefully I'll be Street two party. miles offshore okay <laughs> that would be that would be the ideal in your kayak yeah okay. you know I haven't got anything against the royal family I just can't stand the fuss yeah, I can't stand the, the media. That's what gets me. It's this ridiculous obsession with a few folk who, you know, are probably not that different to the rest of us. Certainly got no particular skills, abilities, talents that other people don't have. Oh, it's just it's madness. I just don't get it. It's one of those moments when... I feel I don't understand this country. My mum loved all that. And I think for her, 
you know, it was just the sense of continuity and tradition mm. and a sense of being connected to the good aspects of the imperial past. Yeah. You know what I mean? Like, because there are some, right? Are there? Are there? <laughs> <laughs> Tea on the lawn, George. <laughs> Cricket. Fair play. Yeah. Uh, well, your um, upbringing intrigues me because you're one of those people... I mean, you are in, I think, every conceivable way, a, a more sort of radical figure than I am. But your parents were conservative. I mean, it tends to be that you've got all sorts of different ways of being influenced by your parents. Either it can be a totally negative influence and you move away from them as much as you possibly can, define yourself in opposition to them. Or if you admire them, you kind of adopt their views, especially politically, you'll grow up seeing the world in a broadly similar way. And if you become more radical than them, it's usually kind of further to... Further along the same spectrum. Yeah. yeah. With me, my parents were conservative, but, you know, they were nice to me. Yeah, yeah. I loved them, they loved me. When I became a little more politically aware, I realised that I didn't agree with them mm -hmm. about politics. Yeah. But we were never so political that it would totally destroy our relationship. Yeah. And so that's left me with a kind of residual some residual aspects of kind of conservative sympathies or at least a feeling that not all conservatives and Tories are fundamentally evil. Mm -hmm. But that, as I say, is a product of, of my fortunate, comfortable and non-horrific family life. Yeah. What was the situation for you? Not so good. Um, so, I mean, my mum never wanted children. She was very clear about that. And actually, she would have been really happy if she'd been allowed to go off and become an academic. That's, that's what I think would have suited her very well. Not having children, burying herself in absorbing work. She went off to, she sort of left home and went to a US university. But she was called back, she was commanded to return by her father when he was standing as a Conservative Party candidate. And he said he needed to be surrounded by his family Otherwise, it would look strange if one of his daughters wasn't there. <laughs> it was terrible. And so she came back. She abandoned what I think could have been a great academic career because she was very intelligent, extremely hardworking, had a sort of roving intelligence, which I think could have taken her a long way. Should we head and, to that bench? Yeah. And soon afterwards, uh, her wings were clipped again and again. And then eventually she sort of gave up and got married and and had children because, as she explained it, people would have thought it was strange if she didn't. You say, as she explained it, was that a conversation that you had with her specifically? She had these moments of extraordinary, almost brutal frankness. I mean, a lot of the time, things were buried, covered up, but there were these almost few states where she would say it exactly like it was. Um, and and that, was, that was one of those moments. But when she said that to you, was she mindful of how you would feel when she said that? Or was that part of her fugue state, was just not to be aware? Yeah, I, I think she always struggled to be aware of how other people saw it. Uh -huh. um, and yeah, I don't blame her for any of this. It's just, 
you know, she didn't have those capacities. And my dad was always away. He worked incredibly hard, even at weekends. He'd often come back very angry. It was a further difficulty. And basically, they couldn't wait to get rid of us. And so they did. And I was sent to boarding school when I was eight. And it was horrendous. Just So it's you and how many siblings? I had two siblings, um, uh, two sisters, but the the middle sibling, Catherine, died um, when she was 30 of anorexia that had begun when she was a teenager. And really, I mean, it seems quite clear to me that it was in response to the really horrible situation, the way she was torn between an utterly brutal school, which made mine look quite mild, and a very difficult home life. So you were all at boarding school? Yes, yeah. And you... As quickly, as soon as we could be, we, we, we were sent off. Eight, I mean, that's hard. I was nine mm. when I got sent off. I got yeah. sent, though, to uh, kind of a cosy, woolly place, yeah. co-ed, no uniform, yeah. out in Sussex. Uh-huh. But your experience sounded in every way worse than mine. I, I think the fundamental mistake that the school made was that because you get physically tough by being exposed to physical hardship which is true it makes you emotionally tough to be exposed to emotional hardship which is fundamentally untrue it is a massive mistake that was made repeatedly again and again you know in the 19th and 20th centuries where people believe you know you treat them mean and they'll grow up tough And it's just not true. You create weaknesses that way. You create what's been described by the psychologist Joyce Shaverian as boarding school syndrome, which is very similar to what people who've been put into care experience. And and it leaves lasting emotional scars, major emotional damage. And you spend your life dealing with that. And, And there are positive ways of dealing with it through love and therapy. And there are negative ways of dealing with it through alcohol and drugs and abuse and all the rest of it. So having been through that extremely brutal and harsh system, a system without any love, any care, where the teachers were completely indifferent, it was worse at my sister's school where the teachers joined in, and regarded all the hardships you might face as character-forming, you have a choice. You know, Are you going to respond to this in a negative and self-destructive way in a way that destroys all those around you as well or are you going to try to deal with it in ways which well, I hesitate to say are positive but at least are, are non-damaging and can be healing Richard Beard wrote a book Sad Little Men mm. about all this mm. and I heard him talking about it and describing the shell that you adopt mm. to protect yourself from some of the Wounds and the vulnerability that you feel after having been through that experience. And he says typical of that is to overdevelop charm and mm. self-deprecation yeah. and things like that. Yeah. And I and, and sort of basically end up like Hugh Grant, yeah, he said. Yeah. yeah, yeah. And I sort of thought, okay, that does resonate. And it made me uncomfortable mm. because mm. I've always been sort of self-deprecating. And I remember me and Joe when we used to do our TV show, a big motif was putting ourselves down in all sorts Mm. of ways in order to anticipate it coming from someone else. It was better coming from us. Yes, preemptive defence. Yeah, exactly. 
And I sort of, after a while, began to see that as not necessarily a great thing to do. And it was pointed out to me sometimes by other people, like, you shouldn't put yourself down like that. You know, it's not mm-hmm. doing anyone any favours. But I've now reached a place where I, I'm still, you know, I, I don't see those qualities as inherently negative. Mm-hmm. Like, everything in moderation, right? It's nice. Charming people are charming and yeah, nice. And yeah. sometimes it's nice to be charming. Sure, and sure. it's nice to be polite. I understand that sometimes politeness can be more insidious and more of a cover for something for some other kind of agenda but it's not always that way right no no, it's not um but you know i think as someone who might exhibit those symptoms you've got to understand what they are and what you're doing yeah and if it's charm and the charm goes deep it's not just an entirely superficial shield that you're you're putting up then fine yeah yeah there's there's no harm in that but you think of boris johnson he was very charming but there was all sorts of really nasty stuff under that surface. And a lot of what I perceive, because I came through a similar system, as extreme damage, which just hasn't been dealt with. And the charm, as I see it there, was very superficial indeed. You know, underneath that, he was utterly ruthless and would chuck anyone under a bus to get what he wanted. I guess the other thing that occurred to me when I was listening to Richard Beard talking was... And and again, I have to stress that... You know, I I lucked out. I was able to have some good times. I met some people I love very much mm. and care about yeah. at the schools I went to, mm. and I, I, I and I almost certainly got kind of unearned advantages, which mm. I yeah. have benefited from. So to that extent, my parents were were right. They did give me a leg up. That's a whole other conversation of whether I deserved it and and what the effect of that leg up is on society as a whole. But the idea that all these terrible things happen at boarding school seems somehow to suggest that terrible things don't happen at other schools but of course they do i mean people have a shit time and are bullied and treated badly in horrible schools outside of the private school system of course that's true but you come home at the end of the day well you know the, the the difference with boarding school is the boarding bit um and you have to just survive it night after night and it's nights which were by far and away the worst. You know, certainly in terms of the bullying, because then you really are on your own. You're in the dormitory, you might have 12 other boys. If you're marked out, as I was, because I made this grand mistake of crying on my first day there, but also because I was a bit of a school weirdo. You know, I was obsessed by nature. I had national health specs. I was completely uninterested in sport and useless at it, but I was swatty. I was, you know, good at the academic work. All those things mark you out as being someone who is going to get pounced on. And it's at night that it happens. You know, it could be bad during the day, but at night it was horrendous. And then you got the sense that there's no escape. You know, every night going to bed was a time of dread. It, It was utterly brutal and horrible. But my sister had it even worse because the teachers came up to the dormitories and joined in. It was amazing. There, there was particularly her housemistress was part of the gang of bullies, and that that drove her to to her death. I, I'm convinced of that. I've got no doubt in my mind at all that anorexia was her only way out to sort of regain some control. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I know it's a cliche that it's about control, but yeah, it is. That's the only thing. The only autonomy she had was whether she ate or not. Because everything else is stripped away from you. You've got no privacy. You've got no separation from the system. You're subject to the rules at all times. 
and you've got other people constantly intruding into your life, whether it's the staff or whether it's the other pupils. You know, they're just there looking over you all the time. And so you can't move. You can't breathe without someone telling you you're doing it wrong. And she wasn't able to talk to your parents? No, no. It just wasn't a place they were prepared to go. Not, not talking, not, not in a meaningful way. Yeah. You know, I remember the times when they would pick me up from school and in the car on the way home I'd try to say I'm I'm being you know I'm being bullied it's horrible or the rest of it and my mum would say oh look at that pony do you think she's pregnant mm-hmm. <laughs> and and it would like the shutters would just come down right there's no equipment there to have that conversation yeah, yeah. and again you know I, I I can't blame them for any of this I don't feel bitter about it it's more it's almost like I'm approaching it now in the spirit of scientific inquiry I I don't feel it has to be forgiven but it does have to be understood yeah I guess some people though as we've established feel threatened by those conversations by Mm. the idea that they may be blind to living their lives in a harmful way Mm. either directly or indirectly so they get very defensive and one of the things that is said about you is that, oh, you're just doing this out of a sense of self-interest and publicity, or I suppose it's a version of virtue signaling. Like, look at me, I'm a great crusading guy, and I'm living my life better than you guys, and you're all wrong and I'm right. Does that criticism ever hit home? Do you ever have moments where you're thinking, I don't know, do they have a point? I mean, you... I constantly am checking myself. You know, yeah. I'm constantly asking, what is my motivation here? What am I doing right now? What's this actually about? And of course, there's never a totally clear-cut answer, you know, because everything you do is tangled up with who you are and where you've come from and stuff which you don't even know about. You can't even put your finger on. But, you know, the, the thing that I have consistently loved all my life is nature is the living world i'm totally embedded in it and i always was and you know you could say well this is a substitute for dealing with your own issues and stuff but actually who cares you know the the living world is is going down the toilet at horrendous speed we're using the planet as our dustbin we need to stop doing that and if there's one useful thing i can do in this short span on this earth it's to try to stop that process as well as i can and you can ascribe all sorts of motives to why I might be doing that, but basically I can't stand to see what we are doing to the living planet. And you know, any successful campaign is an ecosystem. It needs different people with different skills involved. And I know all sorts of things I can't do. I've got a very limited skill set, but there are some things I can do. I can do the research, I can understand stuff, and I can summarise it and I can explain it to people. And I feel my particular role is to try to dig into things which other people aren't covering, the neglected issues. And that's why I get so much flack. That's why so many people profess to hate me, whether they really do or not is another matter, but they profess to hate me because I'm pointing the finger at industries which get almost no criticism at all, at sectors which are massively neglected, I feel, in journalism, by campaigners, in society as a whole. And so those sectors, because there's very few people holding them to account, turn on the few people who are and come up with all sorts of reasons why they might be being criticised. It can't possibly be that we're doing anything wrong. There must be something wrong. 
with the person who's doing the criticism. And you're also able to engage with your critics. And mm. are there times when you have reversed your position on certain things mm. and when you've been public about that? Yeah, yeah. Uh, nuclear power was a classic example of that. I was very anti-nuclear. I took the classic environmentalist line that nuclear power was a great blight and we should shut it down. And it was Fukushima which changed my view because there was the top-graded nuclear accident. It hit the, the highest rating for a nuclear accident, and no one died. And yet, in the ordinary course of fossil fuel operations, people are dying every hour of every day. In coal mining accidents, as a result of the pollution, and primarily as a result of the climate breakdown. And so even when nuclear power went wrong, it was still killing fewer people, i.e. zero, than when fossil fuel burning goes right. And yet, in response to Fukushima, you had the Japanese government, the German government and others shutting down their nuclear programs, which meant they were switching to fossil fuels. So they were switching from what is, despite all the stories about it, a fundamentally harmless technology, certainly in terms of the impacts caused when the power is being generated, though the mining is, is another issue, as it is with all fossil fuels, and switching towards an extremely harmful technology. It occurred to me when I was watching the TV show Chernobyl mm. that actually that show wasn't doing the uh, cause of nuclear power any favours. It was just cementing in people's minds the idea that it's a really harmful way of generating power. It, it was a brilliant series, and what the Soviet Union did in Chernobyl was an absolute catastrophe, and no one should gainsay that, though the death rate was massively exaggerated. But to judge current nuclear power by Chernobyl is to say it's too dangerous to fly because of the Hindenburg disaster. And yet, in the nuclear power sector as a whole, almost nobody dies, ever. You know, it's incredibly safe. Per terawatt hour, it's among the very safest of all energy-generating technologies. Now, there are special reasons for being suspicious of nuclear. You know, it was originally... Nuclear power was very much tied up with nuclear weapons production, which, of course, is a horrible technology, which we ought to stop. But there's also neophobia at work. People are very afraid of new stuff. And one of my roles as an environmentalist is to say to people, stop being afraid of new stuff because it's new. Maybe some new stuff is inherently harmful, but being new does not make it harmful. Hmm. George, how would you feel if I put some specific criticisms that I've read course, beneath yeah, some of your always, talks and always, articles? Yeah, yeah, okay, yeah. cool. These are just very cursory. You know, I'm yeah. sure this conversation is frustrating for a lot of people because you are a divisive figure. There will be people thinking like, you know, you're not pushing back. George is giving you all this stuff. You're not questioning it. Mm. I disagree with him on so many issues. And, you know, I apologize for that, listeners. But uh, I, I am interested in George. I wanted to talk to him. He was kind enough to talk to me. And uh, in some small way, I'm going to um, put a few criticisms to George now. Some of these comments are things that I saw beneath an article by John Lewis Stemple. Uh, can you tell us who John Lewis Stemple is? Uh, he's a farmer and author, and he takes a very different view to mine. So he was talking about Regenesis. And he says, as part of his article, which was called Mombio's Farming Fantasies, Mombio's solution is a farm-free future in which our farmland has been rewilded with exotic megafauna. Think lions, elephants, giraffes. What will we eat? Bacterial soup grown in vats. Such gloop can, apparently, be modelled into tasty dishes. 
in an aural irony a comedian would blush to construct, Monbiot's Damascene conversion to this ascetic diet came in Helsinki. So that's nothing that you need to answer specifically, but that's the general tone of the article. A specific comment underneath from someone called Mary McFarlane says, perhaps George Monbiot should try farming instead of preaching but then he might have to take responsibility. I wonder what he eats. Yeah, so I have a plant-based diet for environmental reasons. I think it's about the biggest shift you can make as an individual. You know, all the really important things we need to do are political and we do it together, but um, individually the biggest thing you can do is to switch from an animal-based to a plant-based diet. It's a pretty good diet. It's varied. Um, I like my food. I quite like cooking, so that helps. You do need to know how to cook if you're going to have a plant-based diet to be honest otherwise it's going to be a bit boring it's not as easy to cook as meat you know you just slap meat in a frying pan because that's one obvious criticism is that if you're asking people to radically change the way they eat you are tinkering with a culture that is very Mm. deeply ingrained for people people are much less conservative than they think they are when it comes to food you see this motto michael pollan came up with it just constantly recited don't eat anything your great 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 grandmother wouldn't recognize as food I, I don't know anyone who says that who lives by it. You know, if my grandmother were to encounter the Thai food or the Indian food or the Vietnamese food or anything else that I eat, virtually anything that I eat, she would regard it with utter horror. No idea what my great-great-grandmother would have thought, but probably even worse. And so we tell these stories about ourselves. I would never eat that much. But actually, then we change our diets and we're constantly changing our diets and in ways which we don't even seem to be aware of yeah exactly my experience was starting to try and eat more vegan food on a kind of experimental basis to Mm. see what it would be like and you know surprise surprise it's fine it's Mm. really nice and now i mean i am not vegan or vegetarian i do eat some meat i don't eat any red meat at all anymore Mm. the idea of switching exclusively to veganism if that was going to be helpful for everyone That's not so terrible. It's like better than the alternative. Yeah, yeah. Okay, this is more simple. Do cattle and sheep really bring an unprecedented amount of methane into the atmosphere? I wonder. Before the last few centuries, there were far more bison, buffaloes, deer, antelope, elephants, rhinos, hippos, etc. These are, I believe, all ruminants, just like the domesticated animals now blamed for ecological disaster. When When she says domesticated, I think she just means, you know, Farm animals. Farm animals. The wild species would therefore likely produce as much methane per unit of weight as the farm animals. I've wondered about this for some time now and would appreciate an answer from someone more knowledgeable than myself. Thanks. Yeah, I mean, of course, wild ruminants also produce methane, but farm animals massively, massively outnumber any number of wild ruminants. I mean, it's now the case that only 4% of all mammals by weight are wild. 4%. 36% is human beings, 60% is farm animals. We kill 76 billion animals a year to feed ourselves. I mean, we're talking about a massive, massive industry with enormous numbers here. And of course, that has a huge methane output, which just dwarfs anything found among wild mammals. Undoubtedly, the the herds of domestic animals are much bigger than those of wild mammals would ever have been because they're everywhere. You know, you would have had intensive large herds of bison or wildebeest in some parts of the world and they would have come together at certain times of year for their migrations and it would look like a hell of a lot of animals. But 
what we see here is that all over the world nowadays there are animals in fields at those densities everywhere so it's far far greater impact but also we are where we are and we have to address impacts whatever they may be wherever they're coming from and the main source of human generated methane is livestock and so when we're dealing with methane which is one of the most potent of all greenhouse gases that's the thing we need to attend to first you hate sheep it sounds like you hate <laughs> sheep you start your talks by just blaming the sheep individually they're all right a bit like teenagers really it's when they get together <laughs> finally in this section a sort of general question i suppose why do the farmers have to pay for this situation yeah. Poor old farmers, like their lives are hard enough. I appreciate you saying that that's not the case for a lot of farmers. Some of them are big old millionaire farmers and that's a different kind of thing. But we're thinking of like the genuine hard scrabble farmers with a way of life that they've inherited that's been part of the human experience of life on Earth for as long as we can imagine. How are they going to adapt and how are their lives going to be transformed? It's a sort of similar thing to what people are saying about AI, like what's going to happen to all these... What's going to happen to the journalists? (laughs) (laughs) It's one of these things about the changing world is things need to change, but what's going to happen to all the people? Well, you know, this has been the case. It's the same with fossil fuels. You know, when renewables take over, you have fewer people working in the fossil fuel industry. When computers took over there were a few people making typewriters these changes do happen that's been a constant in human history but you know we can't just leave people to sink or swim you know the way the coal miners were treated in this country was just disgusting and so what we need to do is to give people a gentle exit ramp and actually we have a really effective means of doing that which is farm subsidies you know we're spending three billion a year in the uk on farm subsidies mostly to keep a dysfunctional system running but if instead we use those subsidies to say look here's a way out instead we'll pay you to rewild your land there'll still be just as much employment in fact a lot more there's a lot of stats on this now showing that rewilding and a nature-based economy employs a lot more people and better jobs than the primary industries that it replaces we will fund this transition and it will be a just transition but just as in fossil fuels we need the transition otherwise there'll be no jobs for anyone there are no jobs on a dead planet and it's not as if anyone's pretending it's going to be an easy transition for an individual who has known that way of life for as long as they can remember and all their relatives Mm. have, have been farmers for example to suddenly change that way of life is going to be very painful as an upheaval Mm. of course of course but then that's happened time and time again every time the subsidy system changes farmers have to change and they make massive changes so for instance when you had headage payments you were paid per animal farmers absolutely crammed the hills with sheep to get as many animals on as they could to, to, to get that money the headage payments were then stopped and they were paid by the hectare so farmers had a completely different incentive and had to radically change their farming system in response and when people say I've always done it like this It's just like when we talk about our diets, we've always eaten like this. No, we haven't. It changes all the time. And the change is often quite sharp and quite disruptive. But then we normalise that new situation and say, this is the baseline, we've always done it like this. And, And sure, change is innately painful. But if we don't change, we're stuffed. 
We really are stuffed. Change is absolutely essential to our well-being. Personal change, political change, economic change, and particularly when we are faced with the greatest predicament humanity has ever encountered, which is the possibility of Earth systems collapse, the collapse of our life support systems. Everything has to change to avert that. Maybe as we wander back, we could have just a little coda which is talking about some of the things that make you hopeful. Yeah, sure. You're pointing in that direction, but I think back is that way. Oh, right, Yeah. I say that with slightly tentatively because I always get my directions wrong. Actually, I'll tell you what, I'll actually get my phone out um, and cheat because otherwise it will be horribly wrong. Um, we'll see where we're going. Phones, though, eh, George? Oh, you got to love phones. Isn't it awful? Isn't it awful? Well, yeah, actually, I, mean, I sort of do. I mean, I'm, I'm not one of these technophobic environmentalists. I think that we make a terrible mistake in, I mean, some environmentalists do, in almost instinctively rejecting technology. You know, some new technologies are an absolute nightmare and, and are going to cause enormous problems for us, but a lot of them just can greatly reduce our impacts, can um, make life easier without doing any harm, and phones, phones are one of those. So that aspect of technology, that makes you hopeful for the future, I suppose? Yeah, the, some, the possibilities that technology might help us out of some of our... Yeah, yeah, and, and we desperately need new technologies, you know, and whether those are new energy technologies, new food technologies, every sector has to change and has to change radically. And to reject technology as part of that package is to try to deal with this problem with our hands tied behind our backs. It's just stupid. It doesn't make any sense at all. What are the other things that give you hope... Well, social movements, more than anything, campaigners, young people, rising up and saying, we don't put up with this. We're just not going to tolerate seeing the living planet ripped apart for the purposes of profit. And those social movements can become incredibly powerful. In fact, that's the only thing which really drives change, is getting enough people committed to change to reach what seems to be a social tipping point, which is... The evidence seems to suggest about 25% of the population. And then things can happen very quickly indeed. You know, if you think of smoking, it wasn't many decades ago where every public space was filled with cigarette smoke. Yeah. And now, you know, if you smoke, you do it furtively behind the dustbins. It's like a guilty habit. Or equal marriage. You know, not long ago, equal marriage was going to be the end of civilised life as we know it. And now the very same people will say, oh, well, of course, I've always, always believed in equal marriage. You know, social tipping has happened. Yes. That enough people were committed to the new position that suddenly the rest of the population didn't want to be left behind. And so if things did change the way you think they need to, what would that look like in practical terms? What do people listening to this, apart from going out and campaigning, which, of mm. course, is an option as well, what does it look like in terms of most ordinary people's lives? What does the tip look like? Well, we need radically to change the technologies that we rely on. You know, number one, just stop burning stuff. We don't need to burn stuff anymore. There's loads of different ways of producing power, lots of ways of producing electricity and of using electricity to do all the processes which we currently use fossil fuels for. You, know, you just do not need to be burning fossil fuels or wood or anything else for that matter. 
change our diets. You know, that's these two things are the two most important things: is switch away from an animal-based diet. Because if we get, if we stop farming animals and leave fossil fuels in the ground, you've solved about 90% of the problem. There's other things how to deal with too. You know, plastics, synthetic chemicals, and the rest of it. But actually, those are the most important issues. You've cracked most of it by doing that. And you know, as environmentalists now, we're well tuned in to the fossil fuels issue. We're much less aware of the need to stop farming animals. But it's just as urgent in environmental terms. Excuse me, which way do we go if we're heading towards White Ladies Road? Over there. Oh, the right, road, thank yeah. you. The complete opposite direction. Yeah, the complete opposite direction. <laughs> yeah, that's it. Oh, the, yes, the, the water tower there. there. Yes, so if you turn I see. right, yeah. the road yeah. that runs down there is yeah. the top of White Ladies, what, oh, you, what right. used to be Blackberry Hill. Indeed, yeah, yeah great. There. Great. Yeah. Thank you. Okay. Thanks a lot. Thanks very much. <laughs> I'm glad we are. <laughs> thank you. There we are. Even with my phone, I can't get the right direction. Okay. How pathetic is that? <laughs> Wait, this is an advert for Squarespace. Every time I visit your website, I see success. Yes, success. The way that you look at the world makes the world want to say yes. It looks very professional. I love browsing your videos and pics, and I don't want to stop. And I'd like to access your members area and spend in your shop. These are the kinds of comments people will say about your website if you build it with Squarespace. Just visit squarespace.com slash Buxton for a free trial. And when you're ready to launch, because you will want to launch, use the offer code BUXTON to save 10% off your first purchase of a website or domain. So put the smile of success on your face with Squarespace. Yes. Continue. Welcome back, podcats. That was George Mombio talking to me there. And I was very grateful indeed to George for meeting me back there in Bristol, making the time to wander around and chat with me so warmly and generously. And I've put some links to some of the things we spoke about in the description of today's podcast. You'll find a link to George's website where you can read his Guardian articles. You can see all the books that he has written over the years and all the other stuff that he is up to. There's a video from 2022 with George in a kayak. It's called Riverside, C-I-D-E. And it is what was originally a live broadcast with George kayaking on the River Wye and talking about the disastrous pollution in that and so many other rivers. There's a link to George and Ewan McLennan talking about Breaking the Spell of Loneliness, the album that they did together. It's a short video about their collaboration in 2016. There is also a link to John Lewis Stemple's article in Unheard, George Monbiot's farming fantasies that I quoted a little from, as well as a couple of the comments beneath that. There's a link to George's article in The Guardian called Boarding Schools Warp Our Political Class. 
And there's also a link to the interview that I watched with Richard Beard about uh, boarding schools. Private schools are trauma factories is the name of the video. Ash Sarkar on Navara Media is interviewing Richard Beard. That was in 2023. And there's other bits and pieces on there. Anyway, once again, thank you very much indeed to George for making the time to talk to me. We watched a good film last night that I thought I would share with you. My eldest son, Frank, age 21, currently is stepping up to the plate as the house's entertainment manager. It used to be my position exclusively. I was responsible for the majority of the entertainment consumed by the residents of Castle Buckles. But recently Frank has been helping out and actually he's doing a better job than I will. I struggle a lot of the time. That's why we end up watching epic fail videos. But Frank came up with a good movie last night that I hadn't even heard of that came out last year, 2023, called Promised Land. It's a Danish film directed by Nikolai Arcel, based on a novel by Ida Jessen, which was in turn very loosely inspired by real-life characters. And it is set in the 18th century in Denmark. Impoverished war hero Captain Ludwig Karlen sets out to tame a vast, uninhabitable land on which seemingly nothing can grow. This beautiful but forbidding area is under the rule of Friedrich de Schinkel, a merciless nobleman who realises the threat Karlen represents to his power. As a new community starts to settle in, de Schinkel swears vengeance, leading to a violent and intense confrontation between the two men. It's quite good. It's a bit like... Well, it reminded me a bit of Rob Roy, the version of Rob Roy that came out in the early 90s, I think, with a almost cartoonishly villainous nobleman who takes against Ludwig Karlen, played by Mads Mikkelsen. Amanda Collin is in it. Do you know her? She's a Danish actor, or actress, if you prefer. She played Mother in Raised by Wolves, did you see Raised by Wolves? That was Ridley Scott's sci-fi series that came out in 2020. That occupies a strange mental space for me, that series, because it came out, toward, I think I'm right in saying, towards the end of 2020, after my mum died and after the first lockdown, when I was feeling properly crazy. And... Uh, I watched Raised by Wolves because it was directed by Ridley Scott, or at least the first few episodes were. And it is what some people might call batshit. Two androids are tasked with raising human children on a mysterious virgin planet as the human colony threatens to be torn apart by religious differences. And the androids learn that controlling the beliefs of humans is a treacherous and difficult task. And Amanda Collin is the chief android, who also, she discovers, has a past as a highly effective killing machine that uh, floats around and screams. And when she screams, she's the necromancer. And when she screams, people explode. So there's a bit of that going on. I can't remember if I talked about Raised by Wolves at the time or recommended it to you. But we watched the whole lot. It's also got Travis Fimmel in it, who was in Vikings. 
Anyway, how did I get onto that? Oh yes, because of the promised land, which I recommend. I think you can rent it off YouTube. And there's, you know, it's violent, but the violence is not totally graphic. It's not like, who's the guy that did Dragged Across Concrete? Anyway, if you've ever seen that, you'll know what I mean. That I would class as unnecessarily graphic violence. Okay. Oh, yeah, I was going to say, because I was talking to George about King Charles's coronation last year. It hadn't happened at that point when we were speaking. I ended up doing a video in which I redubbed a few clips from the coronation in the same sort of way that I have with other similar ceremonies in the past on my YouTube channel. And it was shown on 8 out of 10 Cats Does Countdown recently, an episode that I taped towards the end of last year. And Janice, who comes round to clean at Castle Buckles every now and again, she is an older lady with, I would say, quite different tastes to mine on the whole. But she does like 8 out of 10 Cats Does Countdown. And I was excited to tell her that I was going back on there. And then the show went out a few weeks back. I was waiting for Janice to be all excited about having seen me on the show. Nothing. And then I finally couldn't resist saying, So did you see my coronation video, Janice, on 8 out of 10 cats does countdown? And she looked quite embarrassed, looked down at her tea and said, Yes, yes, I did see it. I thought, Oh dear. <laughs> I said, You didn't like it. She said, I didn't like you taking the mickey out of King Charles. I've got nothing against King Charles. I wish him all the best with his health problems. Sad to hear about it. And I tried to explain to Janice that my video wasn't about King Charles. It was about Regnon from Xantiar. There was a whole setup. I don't know if maybe they cut that out of 8 out of 10 Cats Does Countdown. And I found myself trying to justify my video a bit like Monty Python had when Life of Brian came out saying no no it's not King Charles it's Regnon I would never say anything disrespectful about K Charles anyway I've gone down in Janice's estimation which I feel bad about and if you saw the coronation video and were similarly affronted I apologise for the pain I've caused. Okay, thanks very much to Seamus Murphy-Mitchell for his invaluable production support and his conversation editing on this episode. I really appreciate it, Seamus. Thank you very much for all your hard work. Thanks to Helen Green. She does the artwork for the podcast. Thank you to everybody at Acast who works hard liaising with my sponsors. But thanks especially to you. Now, I'm in a squelchy bit of... uh, waterlogged field here but if you don't mind your feet getting wet come over here let's have a huggy good to see you thanks for coming back and until next time we share the same squidgy field please go easy and for what it's worth I love you bye